Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Was that scary? How was that negotiation for you? Or was it just an easy negotiation? Every job I have right now is a job that I want and not a job I need. Mm. Jamel Hill is one of the biggest names in sports. She worked at ESPN for 12 years as a columnist and on air talent. She's recently signed deals with Spotify, Viceland, and CNN. And today, we have her here to talk about what it takes to survive the media industry. This is Earn Your Leisure on Revolt. My husband is very jealous that I'm here. Oh, really? Yes, because he's a huge fan of our religion. Oh, that's awesome. You guys did the Steve Harvey interview, right? Yeah, yeah. That was great. Just said that that interview was amazing. It was a very... I tell my people who interview because I do it for a living, but I thought you guys did a phenomenal job. I need to That's all I came to say. Mel Hill. How you doing? Oh, good. Thank good. you all for having me. What up, though? What up? What See, up, you know the official Detroit oh, greeting. Of There's <laughs> only one way to greet someone that's from That's right. Detroit. We oh. like halfway Detroit natives. Really? We, got, we yeah. spent a lot. Well, we, we spent time out there, and every time we go out there, the love is just different. Yeah. Like, Detroit love is different. Yeah. He, he didn't bring his bus today. I don't even know what happened. <laughs> I forgot. Disappointed. I forgot. I'm disappointed. I forgot. <laughs> but uh, one of the greatest voices of our generation. You know, mm. we've been, we were sports fans before we was into finance. Mm. So sports is like our first love. So this conversation is right up our alley because we was listening to you before we started listening to CNBC. Oh, well, that is a very humble <laughs> Yes, no. Hopefully I sounded halfway intelligent when we talked about Your voice, it, it mattered to us. Mm. Um, and your perspective was always top notch. So it was like, yes, somebody's speaking for us. Th so thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I mean, it... Um, you know, when you get on an elevated platform, especially someplace like ESPN, it, you know, there is a, a different responsibility, especially if you're black, especially being a black woman. Mm -hmm. um, and these are all responsibilities I certainly welcome. And, you know, growing up black in this country, you know, that is intertwined with the sports experience, how we frame sports, how we view sports, you know, how we talk about sports. And mm -hmm. I think it's one of those um, things that it's okay to bring that to the table. So that's what I tried to do is definitely bring a black perspective to the table in discussing sports. So, I mean, let's talk about that because, you know, we hear about athletes that have sacrificed a lot. Like, you know, we talk about Muhammad Ali, when we talk about the brothers at the Olympics, Carlos and... Tommy Smith. Yeah, Tommy John Carlos Smith, and Tommy Smith. Smith. And Tommy mm -hmm. Smith. Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. as a recent... Um, but you weren't an athlete, you were a sports broadcaster, um, but you made some sacrifices. So, you know, and you're a black woman. So, you know, you're a woman in a male dominated area and you spoke out vocally about things that you believe in and, you know, it cost you in the in immediate situation. Was that something that you calculated in your brain? Was that feedback that you was getting from your family, from you know, your parents, your husband, like how was that to kind of make that decision to be vocal about what you believe in? It's something I actually had done my whole career. It's just that the time that everybody paid attention to it, <laughs> I was a sports center anchor, um, yeah. obviously. And so, but you know, in some way, shape or form, it was just consistent with, 
who I've been my whole career and just who I am as a, as a person. I, you know, I didn't really consider it speaking out. I considered it telling the truth, right. which is a core principle in journalism is that, you know, we're supposed to be truth tellers we're supposed to, and on top of being storytellers. And we're also supposed to hold those in power accountable because we are honestly the voice for the people. Mm -hmm. You know, journalism was created as, uh, you know, with a watchdog mentality. And so that is through the perspective and the lens that I see a lot of things. So, you know, me being vocal about certain issues, whether it be about race, gender, uh, whatever, um, that was very natural to me. So it was never anything I calculated. I mean, hell, if I'd have thought about it, I wouldn't have done it. Probably. <laughs> you know? Come to think of it. Yeah, I was like, this isn't such a good idea, you know, but... In my mind, um, you know, when I'm being vocal, I'm just speaking what I believe to be the truth. And so when you talk about your career, you've done this your whole career. I, I started thinking, is this something you've always, the path you always knew you were going to be on? Because I'm reading like 15 years old, you're getting awards for journalism. Like most kids at 15 are thinking like, uh, we're going to be in entertainment or we're going to make it through sports. <laughs> and you're looking at it from a different lens. Was it, all, journalism was always the path? Always. I was, I'm very much an outlier in that regard. And so when young people ask me about career advice, I'm very honest with them is that I don't know if the advice I can give you will apply directly to your life because this is all I've never, this is all I've ever wanted to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I sucked at science, I sucked at math, right? But I love to read and I love sports and also love to write. And uh, back in those days, you had to read the newspaper in order to follow your sports teams. You know, that's that's the way it went. Yeah, you said it's back in those days. Back in those days, because these kids don't know nothing about yeah. holding a newspaper these days. Everything's I know, it, so, it breaks I, my heart as well. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so that's how I developed a love for the sports section that I read really religiously as a child. I had a um, you know subscription to Sports Illustrated too. Like Same. that was like that was my dream job was to work at Sports Illustrated and be a writer and to write these incredible profiles and about issues and about people and, and that sort of thing. So. In high school, I took a high school journalism class and I was hooked. And it's the only job I've ever had in some way, shape, or form. I have earned a living writing, mm -hmm. always, for since I was 15 years old. Okay, because my, you know, one of my, um, my second job, I should say, my first job, it was like just a little menial job that my grandmother got me. She was a social worker, so she worked in the welfare office. And so she got me a job in there uh, filing welfare cases. Paper cuts are real. Like, <laughs> them joints was like, woo, tell my fingers up. I was like, I tell you what, I'm never going to be is an administrative assistant. That's never going to happen or anything to do with filing. But after that, um, I started working for the Detroit Free Press, which is the largest newspaper um, in Michigan. And I was answering phones in the sports department. And the reason why I did it is because I wanted to specifically not just be a journalist. I wanted to be a sports writer. Yeah. So ever since then, I've always had a job where I got paid for writing. And I'm very fortunate, but that doesn't, that's not the path for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people change careers. A lot of people maybe come to a career late. I just have been really lucky that I've been able to do this for, I don't want to say how many years. Yeah, yeah not, when, when you just said that, it made me think about how I used to read. And it was always, I started with the back of the Daily News, <laughs> and maybe I go to the front. But there were writers that I always would follow. So like Mike Lupica was one of those guys. When you just said Detroit Free Press, it made me think of the sports reporters when Mitch, uh, my gosh, Mitch Album. Mitch Album. Yeah. And he kept talking about he was from there. So Dick Schapp, all these guys. Yep. So was there something that, someone that you said, all right, this is the person that I want to follow or I'm going to model my journalism style after at that age? 
Well, it wasn't so much about his style. Although when you're young, you do tend to, you know, read with that in mind and think like, oh, I want to write just like that person. But the person whose career was kind of on my Mount Rushmore was Mike Wilbon. Yes. Right? Is that because Michael Wilbon, when he was a columnist at the Washington Post, one of the best columnists in the nation, of course, you know, he was somebody also on Sports Reporters. Mm -hmm. um, and with him being a black columnist and having the level of visibility, that was really important. Um, and even locally, um, Brian Burwell, the late Brian Burwell, also somebody who was on Sports Reporters. Uh, Terry Foster, another black sports columnist. So following their paths, um, definitely gave me a sense of belonging. Like, oh, okay, I, c I can do this. And I had, I was very fortunate. I had some, you know, women mentors in my life early who uh, were in sports and some who were not, um, who were just writers who always encouraged me. So I never went through that moment of doubting whether or not I could do it. Um, the wrong thing happened. I got too much confidence early, right? <laughs> and so once that was established, even though I knew I was getting into male, a very male-dominated space. I mean, like, I think most women, a lot of women work in industries that are male-dominated. Sports is, like, male-male-dominated. Okay. The feel of it, the entire, you know, because obviously I'm covering a lot of male athletes. And um, there were many locker rooms that I walked into where I was either the only woman or the only black person or, and definitely the only black woman. Yeah. And I knew that that was going to be a part of what I was signing up for. But luckily, because I had a great support, support system, because I had mentors and other people that I could look to and say, oh, okay, um, this is how it's done. I never went through really a lot of moments of doubt about whether or not I belonged or whether or not I could do the job. So we had like athletes and entertainers a lot where they just, they're passionate about their craft. And they don't realize the business side of it until it's too late. Athletes now I think are starting to get it, but in the past they made a lot of mistakes. You as a journalist, did you always realize the business aspect of sports or were you just so passionate about being a journalist that you wasn't too concerned about the business side? When did so, you realize the business side? So that's a great question because when I was in school, um, I went to Michigan State, when I was at Michigan State, um, I remember very vividly opening up, I think it might have been Newsweek, and they... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We would list the top 100 professions. Journalism was like 98th, right? The average salary for a journalist was $19,000 a year. And y'all know what tuition costs. So I'm like, I'm hustling backwards already. Like, this is a shame, right? So there is this idea in our profession that you're not meant to be, uh, you're not meant to be rich and that money is sort of like, oh, you shouldn't worry about money. And I know people tell you that in a lot of professions, but especially in journalism. So I never came into it with the idea that I could one day like make a lot of money being a journalist. I expected to be poor basically or, or working class because I think most journalists despite the fact you may see me on TV or other people, journalism is very much a working class profession, you know, especially at the, at the local level. You know, the, the, it's a very small percentage of us that make it to an ESPN or a CNN, very small, mm -hmm. and especially um, when it comes to uh, black folks. And I thought I would be winning the game if I made 50 grand a year. Because like 50 for whatever was like the magic number. It's like, I make 50 grand, I'm out here balling. Like, I just <laughs> knew it. And it wasn't until I got to ESPN that I really became more serious about understanding the business side of my profession because I started to see what people were making. And I was just like, 
that's possible. <laughs> and then um, also understanding too that as a a black woman, I mean, I think right now black women make sixty cents on the dollar to everybody else. Yep. So understanding that historically we have been underpaid, and what happens is you get to a point where. Yeah, it's great. I love telling stories. I love talking about sports. But where's my check? And that is where ESPN really forced me to grow up because it's a different game that's being played at that level than it is at the previous places that I'd been. It was the first time I had an agent. It was the first time that, um, you know, I really had to think very deeply about how to manage my money um, and also just understanding how the business really works. So I tell this to um, other journalists, especially the younger ones, I, I became a better journalist when I became a better businesswoman. Mm. What can you explain that a little bit? Like, how I break that down a little okay, bit? Okay, so for example, like when um, me and my former co-host Michael Smith, we did the show His and Hers mm -hmm. before we got to Sports Center. When I started the show, even though we're doing the same job, right? You know, um, and I was making two hundred thousand dollars less than Mike. Right. But we're doing the same job. You know, we're both co-anchoring the show. Responsibilities are the same behind uh, the camera or, or offset. Rather, we were putting the show together and all that. And it was a really interesting lesson for me because I was just like, I really have to have the type of rep representation that's going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right. That you're sitting alongside a co-host where you're making less than Now I realize that, you know, there can be situations where you may have somebody who's so wildly more popular than the other person. And it's not about um, necessarily what you're worth. It's about what you will negotiate. Mm. And that was certainly a lesson in that. And it was because I started at ESPN as such a low salary, all right, to begin with. So, you know, one of those, we'll see if it work out kind of contracts, you know, mm. is what we call a two and two, a two-year deal with a two-year option. Worst contract I've ever signed, right? Because I think my first year's salary was $120,000 a year, but it's $120,000 as a independent contractor, which means I have to pay my own taxes. No health so, insurance. And no, no health, health insurance, insurance. exactly, yeah. which is why I was like, this concert, this contract is trash, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. But it was one of those prove-it type of deals. And the lesson that I learned is that... Um, you know, I know it's ESPN, I know it's a big place, but you still, even with, you can't sell out for a name, right? You, you just, just because you wind up at a place that will give you a huge, you know, platform, you still have to go in there with the mentality of, I'm going to outperform this contract because that's usually what happens. So by the time I got to year four, I was so, I had so grossly, in my mind, overperformed relative to the contract that I had, but it took a while to dig myself out from where I started from. And once I got to doing television every day, yeah. then it was like, okay, ultimately that one contract has cost me, because that was my third contract, I think, at ESPN by the time I got to his and hers. That that cost me every step of the way, not coming in there at a more aggressive number. So how, how does the, the contract work? Because obviously you've had a number of them. You had his and hers. Obviously you've appeared on more shows, but then at one point you were the primetime sports center anchors. Mm -hmm. And so is that something that we now have to renegotiate the contract because it's a new show or is it here's the pay and these are the shows that you're going to be doing? Uh, so the way uh, the way it works is uh, so in, I think in 2013, that's when I signed the contract to do his and hers. I was on a four year deal um, and, uh, you know, getting raises every single year, you know, uh, of the contract and our contracts were coming up. 
So we started Sports Center in 2017. Mm -hmm. They came to us early in 2016 and presented the Sports Center opportunity with us, which of course was going to come with a new deal. So then I signed gotcha. another um, four-year deal. We both got paid the same. <laughs> let me let me just say that. Lesson learned. Yes, yes. We both got paid the same. But and what was crazy, like we had the same. We said had to had the same agent. But you know he had already negotiated um, his his contract. Like, because uh, Mike, uh, uh, I don't even know why ESPN let this happen, but he was able to sync our deals so that we were always going to be a package deal, which gave us stronger leverage and stronger negotiating power together. And because um, when I got to his and hers, Mike was already in the middle of his deal. Yeah. Like, so, and I'm getting a new contract. So he just somehow was able to get him to sync them uh, together. So we were both up at the same time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in, in television, you know, it, it's a real, it's a cold game because. Everybody knows what everybody's making for the most part because mm -hmm. either you've read about it, um, and that was another adjustment I had to get used to. It was the first time coming to ESPN was the first time my salary was reported on. Usually the figures were wrong, but it was just weird to wake up and see, like, in the New York Post, Jamel Hill signs this deal for this amount of money. I was like, this is a story? You know, like, it was just, I was like, y'all got all my business out in the street like that? And so, um, so yeah, I mean... Generally speaking, you know, you're contracted on, on Sports Center to just do Sports Center. Yeah. So um, that was the deal that we were, you know, guaranteed to do Sports Center for three years, 6 p.m. That's what we did. Yeah. So, you know, most athletes, entertainers, when they get their first check, <laughs> they tend to buy things that they've always wanted, <laughs> whether it be cars, jewelry, homes. In your field, journalism, not really reported about what you guys do. Was there something that you had this urge to say, you know what, I'm getting that, I've always wanted that. What was your first big spend? Well, it, it was, I don't know how this, why it works this way, but, uh, and maybe it's just the background that I had. You know, I, I grew up um, uh, in humbling circumstances, to, to say the least. You know, my mother was like kind of on and off welfare. Uh, she worked, but mostly working class. Like my mother has, I think she told me she never made more than, I don't think she, I think it's something like $35,000 a year. Like she never made more than that. So um, at any rate, once I was at a, a point where I was doing, you know, financially pretty well for myself, this is a sports center contract because it also came with a seven figure signing bonus. And so. Oh, yeah, signing bonuses. Uh, well, well, I don't know. Everybody got them. No, I, I, <laughs> I don't that's know. Good. I'm, I'm I don't thinking know. myself. I've never heard of that in general. Like signing bonus, like kind of like that's mm -hmm. the guaranteed money. That's, uh, well... No, no, it's just a signing bonus. It's a signing oh, bonus. It's okay. just like, bonus. hey, welcome. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yes, yeah. The, um, it's, like, it's like a bonus. People get bonuses all the time. Yeah. yeah. Most, I, most I, of the time, think, people get bonuses at the end of the year. I'm like, thinking signing bonus in the terms of sports. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. I think you're probably thinking of it in terms of the NFL. Right. You see a guy has a deal that's worth $200 million, a signing bonus of 20 such and such a, a, a contract is guaranteed. Guaranteed money, right, right, right. right. Exactly. So, um, but it wasn't, in some respects, a financial apology because... One thing my uh, representation that brought up to ESPN is like, you've historically paid her now, uh, underpaid her now for three or four contracts. Like, she deserves this, you know? And so um, they went for it. And so I, I don't think that's <laughs> something everybody gets. Yeah. But again, it's not what you're worth, it's what you can negotiate. And um, when I saw that, you know, um, this, when the seven figures went in my account, I was thinking to myself, like, I just want to stare at this because I was like, I never in my life thought this would ever be possible. And you would think I would have like 500 things I might have wanted to buy, but it was really just two specific things. One, I wanted to buy my mother a car, you know, and uh, my mother is a big reason why I became 
what I've become now and thinking about all the sacrifices she she's made and even all the disappointments that she's had, you know, mm -hmm. because she is somebody, you know, as I said, like she's never made a lot of money in her in her life. And so I wanted to give her something that was just for her that couldn't be taken away. And, you know, um, and so I bought her a new Mercedes. That's why I, I, so I got her a Mercedes and I bought myself a Maserati. So that was my, <laughs> that was my, oh, my nice. two, like, Okay, I'm gonna just you know go in, and it was a, a crazy feeling because uh, my mother's car. That you know, it's the first time I've ever paid cash for a car, and I know a lot of people are like, you're not supposed to pay cash for a car. I know my manager and I had this conversation. <laughs> all right, so before y'all look at me in shame, in shame, I do realize this. Judgment free zone. Yes, but <laughs> the reason I did it is because listen, you can't hand a 60 year old black woman a car. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. And that comes with some kind of note or whatever. I mean, I would have paid the note, yeah. but she just was like, well, can you afford this? I was like, I'm just, <laughs> I pay for it in cash. You don't have to worry. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So I, it, it, financially, I realized it wasn't what they advise you to do, but I wanted to do that for her. What about, talk about negotiating, because I have a friend that uh, works in, in the industry as well. And I feel like the sports industry is, is a really um, tough industry because there's only a few stations or TV stations, so they have a lot of leverage. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have a lot of negotiation power, unless you're like a real, you know, everybody wants you. It's like, all right, somebody else can do the job for a lot less. And when I found out what a lot of people were making, I'm, I was surprised, because I'm like, they're not really making any money and they're on TV. Even the people that's making money in the grand scheme of things, that's not really a tremendous amount of money. So when you were negotiating, like how important was it to have different options or being able to walk away from the table? Was that scary? How was that negotiation for you? Was it just an easy negotiation? Well, what I would say, um, my last contract at ESPN was actually pretty easy um, because you know, the figure they came in with was was actually higher than what we were thinking. So it was like, oh, sign me up. I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> sign us before they think twice. <laughs> but, I, but thinking about, you know, your question, I go back to when I was a newspaper reporter and I negotiated my own salary at every stop of the way, learning lessons um, and also uh, really getting a, a better understanding of how the business worked. The main thing you have to create wherever you are is leverage, you know, um, when I was uh, in college, or no, I'm sorry, when I just got out of college, I worked at a newspaper called the News and Observer in Raleigh. And I was an intern there, and I was there for a few months, and they decided to extend my internship. One of my colleagues, he, had, he was a full-time staffer, but he told me about how when he was an intern at the same you know, place, they extended his internship for 11 months because it was cheaper. Right. To just keep you on as an intern. You know, you're getting paid, but you can pay the intern salary. Mm -hmm. And that was much cheaper than maybe having you as a, as a full time staffer. So what I did was I started looking for a job and there was no way I was going to be an intern for 11 months. And so I got another job offer. I came back to Raleigh and I said, hey, and it was a job I would have taken, too. That's the other thing is like I wasn't just going to pump fake like, hey, unless you guys offer me a full time job, I'm going to leave. And I got that other job offer. They stepped up and they offered me a full-time job. And uh, even uh, when it came, they matched the salary. And so that was just based off me just creating a little leverage, you know, for myself. And I was like, oh, okay. So sometimes you have to kind of 
almost make them think that you're going to walk away. Uh, you know, I think they tell you the same thing when you shop for a car, that you should, like, walk out at least twice or something yeah, like well, that. Yeah. yeah, just to make them kind of raise raise up their level. And even while I was in Raleigh, like, Sports Illustrated offered me a job while I was there. And the reason I didn't take it, even though I know I told you guys earlier that that was my dream job, it was because of the position itself. You know, when I, when I wanted to come through the door of Sports Illustrated, I wanted to be a staff writer, writing pieces on a regular basis and covering things and covering national and international events. And what they offered me was basically a glorified fact checker. That's not what I wanted to do. And I had an option. I was like, well, I can go to Sports Illustrated. I'll be at the place I really want, but not in the job I really want. Mm -hmm. So to me, what's the point? So I just used their job offer to get a raise, <laughs> essentially. So, all right, you're coming from Detroit. You work your way up. Started a low position, you work your way up all the way to making millions of dollars on ESPN, a sports center, which is the pinnacle of sport, was the pinnacle of sports for a long period of time. You get suspended for making a comment, then you made another comment and you got let go. So a lot of people lose their jobs, but not a lot of people lose their dream job. Mm -hmm. So psychologically, how was that for you when you realized that you had been, been fired and that it was over? Well, just to correct you, I was not I fired. fired. I, fired. I was okay. not fired. I walked away. Okay. And the, the thing about Sports Center is, Sports Center was never my dream job. So it was easy for me to let it go. So before I left ESPN, I left Sports Center first. And um, that's because I was unhappy. I didn't like the job. I didn't like some of the things they were doing to our show. I didn't like the leadership that was in charge of our show. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, let me find something else within the company to do. And they were motivated to do it because. The controversy, you know, created some headlines, some of which, you know, um, I think that they were just looking at it as, you know, basically I was kind of toxic. So, again, using leverage, <laughs> I know you want me off the show, but I know you can't get me off the show because in my contract it says I have to be in this spot for three years. So it's almost like a no trade clause yeah. in sports, right? So... For us to get what we want, I want out of Sports Center. You want me off Sports Center? Then I have to waive this, and you have to let me do another job that's here. The thing was is that the other thing that I wanted to do, which was to write, and I would still be on TV, but kind of like how I was before I started doing daily TV, just you know, appearing on Around the Horn and other different types of shows. They usually don't pay people the amount of money I was making to do that. Mm. And but again, do you want me off Sports Center or not? So yeah. they agreed to, to do it. And um, when that happened, I was much happier and I got to move to D.C. I could get out of Bristol, thank God. <laughs> Bristol, Connecticut. Yeah. So you were living up in Bristol? Yeah, I was living in Hartford. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I did my bid. <laughs> yeah. That's tough. Yeah. Lake very Compound. Tough. Lake Compound. Lake Compound. <laughs> you know, what you know about Lake Compound? So we, were, we worked at a camp for years, a lot of years. And one of the trips that we took the kids to was Lake Compounds. And every time we pass it, I'm like, oh, ESPN, we're close. <laughs> yep, because it's like right, right across, across the street. Because the company picnic was at Lake Compounds every year. <laughs> okay, so very familiar with that. But, um, you know, when I decided to leave, I mean, I, I pretty much knew once I got suspended, it was only a matter of time before I was going to leave. And, you know, a, a principle to follow is leave, leave them before they kick you out, mm. right? Better leave too early than wind up leaving too late when you've lost a bit of your leverage. And at this point, you know, there would have been a trust that was broken between me and ESPN. And 
Um, there was also nothing else left that I wanted to do there. You know, I'd pretty much done everything. Um, you know, I started off there as a sports columnist for ESPN.com, made my way to the 6 o'clock Sports Center. It's kind of like nothing what's, else is yeah, left. What's next? Yeah, what's next, yeah. right? And I was just ready to pursue other things outside uh, of sports. You know, I was ready to get into different arenas and um, to, you know, work uh, in production. You know, me and uh, my best friend, we started a production company. So I was just ready to just create in a different way. And essentially, I went to them and I said, basically, I'm going to say what y'all probably want to say but can't say. Like, this isn't going to work anymore, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I would like, you know, at this point, let's consider... Because at first, when we were talking about me leaving, um, they actually you know, offered me um, two other possibilities, like to work at ESPN on, on two other, uh, on two different shows. Like, oh, what do you think about a permanent role on this show? What do you think of permanent, about a permanent role on this show? And that just sounded like the same things I had been doing. And one of the shows I knew they were about to cancel. And even though I asked them, are you going to cancel this show? They said, no, we're not canceling that show. So I was like, thank God I didn't open door number one or whatever. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, um, you know, once I said that, you know, I think we should consider all possibilities, uh, and I talk about this in my memoir that I have coming out in October, once we consider all, you know, possibilities, I think one of those possibilities has to be me leaving here. Because yeah, at that point, like, I think the relationship for me had just kind of soured. And, you know, looking at it from their vantage point, it made sense for them. Yeah, I mean, in their mind at, at that time with the um, where the country was, with the conversation in the country. Um, you know, they were really getting a lot of negative headlines. Conservatives were all over them about being too liberal and too political and all this other stuff. And I was generating a lot of those headlines. So, you know, remove the problem and everybody's good. And so, um, you know, we came up with a, a nice send-off package and yeah. I left. And it was a really, I mean, it was a, a great decision for me. Um, you know, I, I'm very thankful for being at ESPN for 12 years, but you know, I don't, I don't really miss it, yeah. you know, but I'm, I'm grateful for the, being a much better journalist when I left than when I started there. Yeah, so in, in true sports fashion, you had a contract, you spoke to the team and said, all right, <laughs> there's no trade clause, but let's buy me out of this contract and I could become a free agent. Correct. So you became a free agent. Yep. And then you moved to the athletic. Is that uh, the, the next Atlantic. Move? Atlantic. Yeah, the Atlantic. Yep, I moved to the Atlantic because, you know, writing yeah. is always going to be a, a component of what I want to do. Okay. Yeah, so that was the first job that I got. And, um, you know, it was a publication that I had read and respected for a long time, Tony Hossie Coates. You know, it's where he used to write for the Atlantic. Amazing. Amazing writer, Amazing. right? And so um, they just, and they were in the business of journalism. And I didn't have to worry about them being in business with leagues they were trying to cover. Right. Because the Atlantic is its own kind of independent operation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm untethered from working at the network that also has a billion dollar. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Deal with the NFL and a billion dollar deal with the NBA. And so, you know, it gave me a lot more freedom. Plus, they allowed me to cover what I wanted to cover, which was to write about um, to write about uh, sports um, and its convergence with you know race, politics, and gender. And 
um, it was a real opportunity for me to get back to the thing that I loved the most, which was which was writing. Yeah. So with that freedom that you now have or you gained, obviously the conversation wasn't the same. Was there any point where you were saying, okay, I have to change the way I conduct my financial well-being, or <laughs> were you nervous at any time about how you're going to move going forward, or no? What was that I, process like? No, because I, I felt like the salary that I made at ESPN, I was going to make again, you know, which is what happened. And um, you know, I, the Atlantic was one piece of the of the empire being built. Mm-hmm. Then I linked up with Spotify to do a podcast. Um, and I'm not sure the order that it came in, but linking up with Spotify, now we're creating a podcast network together that's for black women that is black woman led and run. And so um, entering into different partnerships with people, it actually increased the amount of money that I could make because there were things at ESPN I had to say no to that I didn't have to say no to before. I can hit the speaking engagement circuit in a real way Mm -hmm. because I don't have to worry about being on TV every day. And so now, um, you know, I sort of traded in one job for like seven different hustles, if you will. <laughs> you know, so now, you know, on my plate, I just, you know, I have Spotify. I'm still writing for The Atlantic. New show coming out on um, CNN streaming service. Yep. Um, producing uh, Colin Kaepernick's 30 for 30. Um, have sold some shows um, under the production company. So it actually led to more streams of revenue. Multiple streams of income. Mm-hmm. As one of my boys said, they're like, hey, you got to have five hustles, <laughs> okay? No. And I was like, I think I have more than five now. And um, they're all tied together, like, in a, in a lot of ways. At the core of it is, you know, storytelling and, and things that I've always been good at and things that I, I like to do. But I also, because of the money I made at ESPN, every job I have right now is a job that I want and not a job I need. Ooh. That's a bar. That's a bar. So, mm-hmm. Let me ask you about the world of uh, podcasting, something that we know a little bit about. Just a One or two things. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. You're building out your podcast network. So what made you want to get into podcasting? And uh, how did that partnership work with Spotify? Can you talk about the, the partnership with Spotify? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is a bit of a, can be a downside when you're at a network like ESPN is that, you know, you're kind of caught in a machine and a lot of the things that I loved about journalism, sitting down, interviewing people, you know, talking to folks, like a lot of that, you know, kind of is missing or was missing, you know, for me. And so I wanted to get back to the core of, of what I loved about the profession, hence writing for The Atlantic. And with Spotify, that gave me another opportunity to sit down with people, have thoughtful conversations, learn about people, have people who are listening, learn about the people that I'm interviewing and just... Um, you know, really from a creative standpoint, just kind of get back uh, to the things that I, I really enjoyed. And so the way it was set up with Spotify, it was it was a, initially a two-year um, deal out the gate. And then when it came time for to renew, which, of course, they wanted to renew, we had conversations before my podcast was, was renewed about creating this network. And, you know, um, what I noticed when I looked around the, the podcast space is that there weren't um, there wasn't a cohesive platform, I think, for black women. There are certainly black women who are out there podcasting, but mm. I was thinking to myself, like, what if there was, like, one platform where you know you could go and you could get a slate of shows that explore the fullness of who black women are? I'm not saying we'll explain everything because we're complicated, but I think that really sought to 
showcase our nuance, whether it be in spirituality, wellness, um, uh, conversation, relationships, whatever that might be. And we were at a time in our country where it felt like everybody was just depending on black women to do everything. You know, like we saving Wakanda, yeah, Stacey Abrams saving Georgia, trying to save democracy. I'm like, you know, we need something in a space where we feel like that we can be heard and also we can be vulnerable. And it was important to me, um, especially as I've gotten to the point in my career where, you know, I, I've done cool stuff, I've won awards, and that's great, but it's all about what you leave behind. And what I felt like when I got into the business is that the caretakers of our business left the business in a better place. And so I wanted to create something similar. And so, you know, there are deliverables that I have with this network, delivering a certain amount of original concepts, a certain amount of licensed podcasts. And, um, you know, basically we're gonna just try to develop cool shows. And, um, you know, obviously I get a you know percentage of the overall budget and a percentage of executive producing some of these shows. So, you know, you have different lines that you get, you know, paid for, but mostly, I want, um, I needed this to be really black woman led and not just have black women as content creators, but behind the scenes have black women who are empowered because the, the other component that was important to me is that the Unbothered Network be a place where black women felt that they could advance and further their careers. So how was it from being a host um, to being an executive? Like. It is all, you know, I will say this, it's like, it's so much you learn in real time and you learn on the, uh, on the fly. And, you know, I don't have everything figured out in, in terms of the, of the business for sure. And I'm sure there's more lessons to learn, but yeah, I mean, I had to get educated really fast. I mean, I'm lucky because I have a, a great team who realizes that uh, being a journalist, I am not an econ professor, <laughs> but you know, there are basics that you, you, you definitely understand that'll take you everywhere. But like sliding into more of a, you know, being an entrepreneur at this stage of my career is the plot twist I did not see coming. Um, you know, I, I kind of thought of myself as more of a singular entity. You know, you're, you're your own kind of corporation, yeah. right? And now all of a sudden I have a payroll and people I'm hiring and I'm like, when did this happen? How did this, this change uh, occur? But I still, um, I'm grateful for all the lessons that I've learned, both about managing people, making relationships work, um, demanding things, um, not necessarily for my team, but just in partnership, like doing that whole dance has been very, um, you know, it's been very educational. And these are lessons that I think are just gonna benefit me the rest of, of my career. So yes, there are days where I look at my calendar and I'm like, what drunk person put this together? I don't know who did this. And there are days where, yeah, I definitely feel stretched really thin, but I remind myself constantly about the purpose behind what I'm doing. And to me, the Unbothered Network, for as many of the things I've done in my career, will be the, the defining moment for me. Yeah. It will be this. This will be... You know, if this network becomes what I think it can become, this will easily be my greatest success. So, so you said that, obviously, you started out as your own brand, right? And Jamel Hill's Unbothered was it solo, and now you have the network. So who's helping you with this, right? Because you said there's a team. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you decide, I need a team to surround myself with to make sure that this becomes my legacy? Or was it when you were obviously going through those contracts as a... Uh, sports journalist, or was it, all right, now that I've become an entrepreneur, I need to build a team because this is an area that I haven't mastered yet. So the team, it was developed pretty organically. Um, and, you know, it started 
uh, with my manager, um, Evan Dick, who he was an agent at CAA. And he was my agent when I was at CAA. And he left CAA right around the same time I left ESPN. And we just talked about the fact that we really um, were content creators at heart. And we really wanted to kind of just explore some different areas, you know, through production, through film and, and TV ideas, through, um, you know, just a lot of different stuff. So he and I were always very like-minded. And um, so, you know, that's one key component. Um, you know, my publicist, my like all these things kind of happen um, almost by by need, you know, you know, my assistant that I have now, which is a really good friend of mine, she had come to me years before I actually hired her and said, like, you need an assistant. And I want to be your assistant. I was like, I would never have one of my friends as my assistant, right? Because a lot of people think, like, you hire your friends, that's a danger zone. But when you think about the amount of personal information that an assistant sees, I was like, yes, hiring my best friend from high school was the perfect thing to do, <laughs> okay? So uh, between my publicist, my manager, the Unbothered team, um, where I have a head of content, a head of audio, um, and, you know, even just, of course, you have your personal support system. I mean, my husband is, like, incredible, you know, incredibly supportive, um, always somebody I could bounce ideas off. It was his idea to develop a T-shirt line for Unbothered. He was like, you know, you really should develop um, a T-shirt line around some of the things you say on your podcast because, you know, they're kind of funny. <laughs> and, and, you know, just to further brand yourself. So, um, you know, so, yeah, we started selling merch for the podcast and, um, you know, which has been really successful, uh, jamelstore.com. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, I'm branching off in these areas that I just never would have guessed because I did not consider myself to be somebody who would be a business owner. I thought I'd be a terrible business owner. So, um, but no, it, it is about having a trustworthy team, people who watch your back and, um, you know, holding people accountable. I hold them accountable. They hold me accountable. And that system of accountability has so far proven to be, you know, really wonderful. And um, it matters to me that, I mean, pretty much my entire team is like dominated by black women. Mm. Um, I always mess with Evan. I'd be like, you probably gonna be the last white dude I ever hired. <laughs> <laughs> it's like mess with him. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think that part is important too, because as I said, I want, you know, working with me not only to be, you know, a great experience personally, but I also want it professionally uh, for it to be a, a, a good, um, you know, decision for folks as well. Like somebody coming after somebody on my team to me is just a huge compliment, uh, a huge compliment. So what are some of the lessons you say you had to learn a few lessons? Can you share some of the lessons that you learned? from? Well, I mean, definitely learned a lot of lessons about, um, you know, about leverage. And I think also, uh, and this was something that started at ESPN because among the, you know, the journalistic growth there, I'm also grateful for what it taught me about business. Because when I started hearing from other people about the things they were asking for in their contracts, it made me, um, one, mad at myself that I hadn't thought of the same thing. And two, it just taught me that whatever you say to somebody who you're negotiating with, I promise you it's not the craziest thing they've ever heard. Like, I, I promise you they've heard something crazier. And I think being a, a, being a woman, like, there's a conditioning that happens to us that we don't want to be too demanding and we don't want to... Um, tick anybody off by what we demand. And that left me a long time ago, you know? So effing unbothered is, is a way of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or being unbothered, I should say, is definitely a way of life. That left me a long time ago. So I had to learn to ask for the things that I felt like I, that I was worth and not be shy about saying and, and, uh, about what those things were. And also 
you know, telling people what also wasn't accept acceptable. Um, I also had to learn, too, that sometimes no is a powerful answer, <laughs> okay? And, uh, you know, because there were there were instances where I was agreeing to do things that just weren't worth my time, and I'm not getting paid enough money to do it. I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, mm -hmm. all it's doing is really taking me away from the things that are paying me money, okay? Um, so no was a, a very powerful lesson. And then, you know, I, I think I also... Um, you know, had to learn that when it came to money, to not be shy about discussing it. And I think, you know, me and my, a lot of my uh, female friends, we talk about this, um, especially all those of us that are in the same business, is we're very open about what we make. And that's because we don't want anybody to, you know, be slighted or not get what they're worth because companies depend on that silence, mm. right? Because they know if people find out what they're paying, then um, that will also help their leverage at the negotiation table, which is what they don't really want. So I remember a really good friend of mine, she hit me up because an uh, um, a organization I had spoken uh, at, like it was a, gave a keynote address, they came to her and they offered her, um, I forgot what they offered her, um, but they offered her like half of what they offered me, right, to speak. And they offered me twice as much. And I would say in terms of like, you know, her, um, her appeal and popularity, she was definitely on the same level I was. And I couldn't believe that they did that. And, she, and I was like, well, I'll tell you exactly what they paid and what also, you know, what I put in my writer for the other things, you know, that I wanted. And they gave me all of that. And what made it even worse is that they paid me double what they offered her and I just had to get in my car and like basically go down the street. Like it was it was a home game for me, which was which was my incentive to do it. And so she went back to them and I don't think they I'm not sure if they ever raised it up, but she appreciated the fact that I told her. And so I think it's especially important that black women share this information because uh particularly if we're in the same career space. Um just so it's protection for us and that we can be cognizant and aware of, of what we're worth. And with men, too. I mean, it's important that men share that information with us so that we know, you know, as well, because we know pay equity is a real issue in this country. And so it informs, you know, me. Because yeah. when Mike and I were doing the show together, Mike told me exactly what he made. That's how I knew that I was underpaid. And had he not shared that information, then it wouldn't have come back and been helpful when they gave me the signing bonus. That's, that's very important. So uh, on top of sharing what you're making, are you also talking about and sharing the things that you're investing in? Because that's something that we really don't talk about either, right? Yeah. Like everybody's like, I'm going to do this. I'm doing stocks. I'm doing real estate. And you never get, you just find out later, like, hey, this is, uh, look how much money I made. <laughs> right. So in your industry, and I guess amongst your, your counterparts, are there people are that are saying, hey, these are the type of investments we're making. Oh, this is the person you should be talking to. This is somebody who can advise you in that path. Yeah, um, I definitely I have a, a wealth manager. Um, uh, shout out to Wells Fargo. <laughs> I, like, I have a wealth manager. I have two wealth managers, actually. Um, another uh, wealth manager who's a, a friend of mine um, based out of Connecticut. And when I got that signing bonus, you know, he and I had already been talking about investments just as friends. And um, I'm the type of person that if I want to, you know, work with you or I observe you first a lot of times just to see how you move. And he never, ever tried to pitch <coughs> working with me at all. Mm -hmm. And I actually appreciated that. And so I was able to see how he moved and how he navigated. And it made me want to work 
with him. And so I came to him and said, hey, I, I think I'm ready to, to really do some serious investing. And so, I mean, this would have been back in, in 2016. Uh, so I, I started an account with him. I initially put in 100000 and it's like more than doubled since then, just based off the investments. And it's not the crazy that's in there. I mean, it's, it's your usual suspects, uh, Netflix, Amazon. Apple, Microsoft. Apple, you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But there was a couple that he put me on. Um, one is uh, Mercado Libre. Oh, yes. You know yeah. about Mercado Libre. South America. South, South America, right? Oh, That's their Amazon. We, we know what thing it's too. I mean, we know what thing it's So Mercado Libre. <laughs> yeah. That was when he put me on kind of early. And because of our, um, you know, us, uh, me and my husband doing this, this apparel line in connection with the podcast, Shopify. Shopify. Shopify was another one. And so, um, you know, we wanted to invest in that. So we did that. And you know, I mean, essentially, our investment approach is that at this age, where we assume um, that we'll be working another fifteen to twenty years, is that you know the the majority of our portfolio is stocks. You know, for the most part, and mm. I mean, there's some other safer stuff in there, some cash bonds, some some other things. But we know that right now is a time that we can take you know a little bit more risk. Nothing you know crazy, but yet it's not. You know, we don't have to. Um, we can literally leave it in a place or a few places in our case and just kind of leave it alone. Yeah. What's the vision for the network? Like you're already with Spotify, so I, I'm assuming it's not to like get acquired. So like what is the 10, year, 10 years from now, like what's your vision for your podcast network? My vision is strictly built around the content. You know, I mean, of course, there's financial goals that we have to reach, uh, you know, every year per Spotify in terms of what we deliver to them. Um, Like ad ad revenue. Yeah, well, the the ad revenue, I mean, the the beauty of of being at Spotify, like I know there's a lot of podcasters that are out there, as you know, that have to sell, you know, their own ads, Mm. you know, or or, I'm sorry, you know, become a salesman personally, just get ads for their podcast or depend on ad revenue as a part of, you know, what they make on their podcast, that is not my story. You know, that's not the way things work at Spotify um, when you're exclusive to Spotify. So Spotify gives me, um, you know, a a yearly budget that includes my talent fee. And from that, you know, I pay my engineer, uh, producer, social media person, all that. And then the rest is for me. Right. And so, um, uh, you know, getting back to your your question about um, you know what the vision is for the for the network, I think it's just in, important for me to just create a space that celebrates, amplifies, and elevates Black women. It's just that simple. And um, every metric of success that I will hold for the podcast will be about its ability to create community, its ability to create fellowship, and its ability to create a safe space for Black women. That is my evaluation. Metric. I'm shows sure. shows all across the board. Mm-hmm. Yep, all mm-hmm. across the board. I mean, the the shows that I mean, we'll have some announcements soon. But you know, the shows that um, that we're interested in and or are in deep negotiations with are you know cover how Black women worship, uh, cover um, you know how Black women are at work. Um, we have a very interesting <laughs> one that, that I think it will be great. And of course, in in the well in the um, in the mental health and wellness space. So, um, and there's a, a lot more that we want to do, and there's particular black women that we want to work with, um, some names that I know folks will recognize, and give them um, a platform to, to further, you know, the conversations in our community. Yeah, can, can we talk about, obviously, working together? Especially, I mean, I think people kind of discount the fact that, obviously, it's two black men that are working together, which is great. But the fact that you and Carrie Champion yeah. are two black women that are doing inc- incredible things. Can you talk about the power of that visual and, and the change in the narrative what, 
females are working together and doing incredible things. So it, it, it's interesting, especially when you consider how Carrie and I became friends, because Carrie got to ESPN. Um, she was, you know, host of First Take. And for a couple of weeks, they had actually been auditioning me for the, the same role. And I knew I wasn't going to get it because I knew I wasn't, I wasn't really what they were looking for. And, um, but there was this sort of narrative that was building that um, I was going to have it out for whoever had that job because I didn't get the job. Mm -hmm. And I know that in our business a lot, that happens where people create these jealousies. You know, they create these beefs out of nowhere that suddenly become real. And I didn't want that to be certainly my story with another black woman. So when she got there, I purposely reached out to her um, right away um, and, you know, offered to take her to dinner because I wanted uh, I wanted her to hear from me that, like, I'm very happy that you're here. Because even though I didn't get the job, to me, the win was the fact that you have a black woman on a very popular show in a very high-profile position. Like, her winning means I win, as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us need to have that attitude, is that, you know, there is no, um, you know, what did they say, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so um, I thought for our business, that really was a powerful message to send to other black women in this business that she was sitting in that chair. And so I sent her an email and she didn't respond for like a month. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this half a trying. <laughs> right? I tried to nice <laughs> I was like, I was trying to be nice. I was like, no, she's going to be my friend, whether she likes it or not. It turns out Carrie actually didn't know how to work her email. So that's why she was like, girl, it took me a month to figure out how to do it. And you know, we had a dinner and also I wanted her to be aware of, of sort of the, the the perceptions about that job. And, you know, there was going to be some difficulties, you know, on that show that I was just trying to put her up on some game. And as she likes to joke, she was like, yeah, after that first dinner, I thought, she's crazy, but okay. And I was like, yeah, maybe I came on a little too strong with that. But over time, we just developed a really great relationship and a very powerful and strong you know, friendship, and we were a support system for uh, each other as we were in those mean Bristol streets. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, from that, uh, you know, we always had great conversations as friends, and so we just kind of wanted to extend that to television. So, yeah, I mean, there is, there's all these negative stereotypes that black women don't work well together and that it's got to be a fight to the death and all this kind of stuff, but that's never you know, been a part of our friendship because I think we generally root for each other. And I think that's the essence of any friendship yeah. is that when you can be happy for one another and my being happy for you is not dependent on how my life is going. Yeah. I'm just happy for you. Do, do you see yourself in that role now as where Mike Wilbon was a person you looked up to and now you have young females in the, the, the industry and now they're looking up to you, do you feel more of an obligation to become a mentor to, the, to these young ladies? I, I think it's my, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't use the term obligation. I would say it's my responsibility to do okay. that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just because I, I think, you know, just thinking about my career and the number of people who took time out, and it didn't have to be a lot of time. Sometimes it could be just a 10 minute conversation. You know, I think like my second con contract that I was negotiating at ESPN, I called Will, Will Bond and got some advice from him. And that might've been 10 minutes, but it might've been 10 minutes that, that may have gained me $150,000, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, just hearing from him, hearing from an OG about how to approach things. And so, um, yeah, I want to be that same person as well. Like, um, cause I think it's just, it's important that 
um, as black women that, that we build community and we have community, whether you're in the media space, no matter what space that, that you're in. And so I've always considered that to be a responsibility and, and honestly a relationship that I really cherish. So what's the relationship with CNN? How did that come about? Um, very organically. They saw the show that Carrie and I had on Vice. Um, Carrie and Jamel won't stick to sports. Uh, they liked it. They were starting this new streaming service where they needed a ton of new shows and they just kind of reached out. And um, yeah, I mean, we just met with them a, a few times. We went to New York. Uh, we did a pilot. They loved it. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And now we're, you know, creating this this new show with them. And, um, you know, just really the Vice show, we had a lot of fun. Like, I even laugh now thinking about some of the crazy things we actually said and did on television. <laughs> you know, um, who, uh, you know, who takes shots of Hennessy on TV? <laughs> this person apparently right here. And Shannon Sharp. <laughs> yes, and, and Shannon, right? Yeah. Very important. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we want to, of course, bring that same spirit, that same fun, um, our relationship to this new show. But, you know, we also got some wrinkles, too, that I think people are really going to get a kick out of. So let me ask you this, because it's one thing to have a relationship as a friend or even working together, but to actually be business partners that causes a lot of problems a lot of times. People have different opinions. How has that been as far as you, you guys actually coming together? I'm sure you don't agree on every single thing. Right. Um, so how is it as far as, you know, coming to a compromise and putting ego aside? How is, how is that? Well, I mean, I think Carrie and I, uh, I mean, you're right, we don't agree on everything, but we're like-minded. We're not the same, but we're like-minded. And as, because we are like-minded, compromises are easy. Like, they don't feel like compromises necessarily, you know, to me. They feel like, okay, you know, I'm going to let her take the lead on this. And that's, that's totally fine with me. Uh, we don't um, argue in front of the kids. <laughs> and that means, <laughs> uh, by that I mean, like, you know, producing staff or anything like that. So any any debates or discussions that we have, we, we have it with ourselves first. And then we go to them you know, be it our producers, be it upper management and management and present a united front. And it's very similar to how my relationship was with, with Michael Smith. We did the same thing. We knew that whenever uh, we were in front of company, we were going to present a, a unified front. And I think that's important um, in those kind of part partnerships. And you're right, working with friends can be, you know, very delicate. But I do think that if there are if there's general, um, if you guys have a foundation of respect, which I would hope as your friends you would, then it's not going to get to to certain, like, you're not going to go into certain areas and you're not, you're going to realize and know and respect their boundaries as your friend. And if we need to have a tough conversation, um, then we can have that because we're friends, right? And so ultimately I want the best for you and you want the best for me. And so, you know, I don't anticipate you know, there being many conflicts. And there's, you know, there's got to be trust there too because even if it's something that I might not agree with but I see Carrie is like really passionate about, I trust her enough to say, you know what, go right ahead. Like, I'll, I'll try it. Like, let's jump off the cliff together. Forget it, all right? <laughs> like, all good. And so that's just, that's my approach. I, I just been, I've been really lucky, you know, because I know a lot of people in TV who are working alongside people they can't stand. And I never wanted that to be <laughs> my existence is true. I mean, I, I know people who are not real friends who, you know, they have a work relationship um, or one that appears to be a friendship on TV. And then they go their separate ways and they never talk and anything like that. And while I'm not saying everybody I work with has to be like my best friend or anything like that. But I think the reason the shows I've been on have been great is because of the friendships and the friendships that existed before we were on TV together. Hence why I have 
um, a lot of trust that they will exist after we're not even working together. I mean, if me and Carrie weren't on TV together, we'd just be doing the same TV show, but we'd be uh, at the bar drinking rosé. It's the same show. Oh, I, I thought Hennessy was going to be the rosé. <laughs> no, no rosé. Okay, I am, listen, the I had, bar, to, I had to retire in this Somebody bring me my champagne. <laughs> bar so so we, we got Jamel Hill, the journalist, Jamel Hill, the brand, the entrepreneur. Where do you see your legacy? What do you want it to be? I think it's just all about um, me creating a legacy where others can stand on my shoulders. And was that the intention when I was, you know, 21 years old and uh, just starting out in this career? No, it was not. But over time, seeing where we weren't, it became my mission, you know? And so now, to me, it's all about me being able to elevate other people. And I know that sounds like probably pretty corny. And I know it probably sounds like, oh, everybody says that. No, I really mean it. Is that the, the things I've been able to do and accomplish in my career really won't mean much if I haven't been some kind of service to others. Because this, um, you know, there's only so much praise I can accumulate for myself, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, I know at some point it's like, okay, these are great. And I'm, I'm grateful to, to have done some of these things, but it's gotta be about um, being able to put, to put um, other black women, other black people in positions of, of success, you know? And I, I feel like having that community perspective, um, it, it not only, allows me to stay more grounded, but you know, frankly, it, it allows me to feel as if I'm contributing in some in some way, that I'm not just here just collecting stuff, mm -hmm. that I'm actually trying to put some substance behind it. You spoke about your book that's coming out in the fall. Um, talk about that a little bit. What, what, what's, what's the thought process behind that? Uh, so this is the book I did not want to write. <laughs> okay. So it always starts. I, I'm telling you, because I always wanted to write a book. I never wanted to write about myself. And then my literary agent was like, so there might be a bit of a bidding war for your book. I was like, so you're telling me there's money involved and there could be a nice amount of money involved. So I was like, all right, I guess so, you know. Um, but that wasn't the only reason that um, I wanted, I eventually agreed to do it. Um, you know, I also considered it a, a bit of a challenge. I was like, you know what? I really want to explore um, some parts of myself, some things I've experienced, and write about them in a way that I think people will relate to. So uh, the memoir is called Uphill, and uh, I take you through these you know, very different points of my life. And I think people will be really surprised by a lot of the stuff that's in there, just because I, I think so many people just knew me from ESPN. And like, oh, she's a journalist. She worked at ESPN. You know, they have no idea of my background, my upbringing, my upbringing, how I was raised, the generational trauma I've experienced, like a bunch of things. And so um, I just kind of wanted to lay it all out uh, there for people. And I'm hoping that people see this not just as um, a testimony, but also see it as uh, as something that inspires them. I wanted to write something that would that would inspire other people. Just, you know, we, we're all going to face different challenges, different adversity I mean, it, it, it's what happens, it's life. But, um, and how we respond to those things is, is really what defines us. I'm sure you guys, as money guys, have heard this before. You know, um, you know money doesn't make you, it makes you more of what you are, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's my approach when it comes to, you know, moments that, you know, where you experience adversity, you know? It, it just reveals the character that you have. 
I heard somebody say one time that everybody should write a book because everybody has a story. I mean, it's it's true. I mean, maybe and if book writing is your, isn't your thing, that I mean, there's plenty other ways to tell your story. Because I think most of us do have some kind of story. I mean, y'all have a story, right, about how you got to where you are. And it's not just people that become super successful should right. think yeah, about no, that. Sure. But this is about, um, I think, meaningful experiences that actually bond us more together. I mean, as people, we already know we have way more in common than we do you know, our differences. And I think through books, through telling your story, you help people realize it and say like, oh yeah, I've, I've been through that too. I've been through tough financial times too. I can relate. Um, it's something that allows us to build community. Yeah. So the tough financial times is key because obviously the title of the show is Assets Over Liabilities. Mm -hmm. And so you've obviously talked about some of the assets you've had, the investing. What are some of the biggest financial mistakes maybe you've made? I'll, I mean, you touched on the contract, but are there, are there others that you were like... Man, what was, what was I thinking? Yeah, I mean, you know, I learned the hard way. Never get involved in things you're not really interested in, right? Like, I remember I saw, like, a, a well-known athlete who was doing, I think, a hedge fund, and I'm like, why? I mean, like, is this something that you really know about or you're really interested in? Because it seems like you're just sticking your name on something you don't really know, you know, know that much about. Mm -hmm. And, um... You know, like everybody, uh, I tried, I went through the phase of trying to get involved in real estate, right? Of, of being a property owner. Bad idea. In Detroit? In Detroit, in Detroit bad idea, <laughs> right? And this was, I mean, this is at a point where people knew in Detroit that uh, the housing market was, it was coming up. Yeah, it was like, you know, you could get something real cheap up yep. in Detroit. And that was part of the motivation is like, okay, buy a bunch of houses or whatever, rent them out to folks. And trying to do that when while living in, I was living in Florida. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. And while I had contacts on the ground, uh, one of them contacts went off with the money. Okay. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, we had uh, uh, tenants, because me and, and a friend, uh, we went in and, and we got a, a group of houses. And she was more interested in real estate than, than I was. And I didn't, I didn't get into it. Because of, of her, I brought her into it or whatever, because somebody else sort of convinced um, uh, convinced us that like we should do it. Like, oh, it's an opportunity there. You know, my boy knows such and such, and he'll set everything up and this and that. And for a little period, things were going okay. But even with the tenant part, it's like, uh, you know, even having some Section 8 tenants, um, which, were, which were great, because you know that money comes in regardless, yeah, like every man. month. Guaranteed. But... There were other tenants. I mean, I had somebody just straight up squat on me. Like, it was, like, rough. It was real rough. And plus... Did they the, steal your piping? They didn't. I know that's the thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> they did not steal that or whatever. But they just they just stopped paying rent. Yeah. Like, they're just like, we just ain't going to pay. And evicting somebody is very difficult to do, you know, depending on what, you, what yeah. the, where you live and what the rules are. So from that, I learned... As I said, don't get involved in something you're not actually interested in or, or care about. You know, I, I don't know anything about real estate. I mean, I, I mean, of course, me and my husband own a house. I mean, I know about it from a personal level. I bought a house. I know that's just me taking care of that house, and mm -hmm. that's it. Being responsible for other people and doing it when you're out the state, no, 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 no. That is not a good idea at all. So uh, long story short. Or long story longer, um, I had to short sale a couple of houses, a couple of them foreclosed on, um, and it really did uh, plummet my credit for a while. It did, and 
you know, one of the more difficult conversations I had to have with my husband when we were just dating, because uh, he has excellent credit, is I had to tell him and be honest and be like, mine ain't where it should be, and this is why, and explaining the whole situation. And this was, you know, again, we were just, um, we hadn't really talked about marriage, but I just wanted him to know, I mean, because we were getting, you know, yeah. pretty serious. And so that was a difficult conversation to yeah. have, and you feel even stupider repeating the story, because <laughs> you're like, yeah, I really did go for that. You know, it's so crazy because I was just talking to somebody the other day and they're like, what's some of the reasons why athletes go broke? And of course, it's like the obvious stuff, friends and family spending too much. But one of the reasons is bad investments. And that's not necessarily an irresponsible financial decision because you're trying to make money on an investment, Correct. but you're just not fully educated or you're trusting the wrong people. Correct. And you think that you're actually doing the right thing. But that's a way to lose money. A lot yeah, of people yeah. lose money in investing in just bad, bad property, yeah. bad stocks. People running off with the money, Ponzi schemes, all types of stuff. I was even thinking about the conversation that you had about credit. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember we had this conversation, like, when do you bring this up when you're dating someone? It's a very so, sensitive, very sensitive topic. It's a very sensitive topic. topic. So the fact that you were honest about it, it was like, yeah, this is where we're at, but now we can build together. Well, I think what happened was we were talking about credit and he was saying, because um, I was pretty amazed because he was saying when he was in college that he, um, you know, he was the type of person that like, paid off his credit card bill every month, if there even was a bill to begin with that was even high and like how he was always been a saver and um, you know how he pays like every bill like on time. I was like, ooh, that is not my story. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I think he said something along the lines like, I don't think I could marry somebody with bad credit. And I was like, Check, please. Sir, let me tell you something. <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I ain't saying uh, that my credit, wasn't, my credit wasn't in the 400s or nothing like that, but yeah. it, could, it definitely could have been better. And he actually um, gave me a, a, a suggestion at the time when I, after I told him, and he was very, like, sympathetic. Um, and he was like, you know, you should just uh, go ahead and apply for a, a credit card. Because I had actually, I didn't even have a credit card at the time, right? Because once I paid off all the debt, and everything, I was like, let me just chill for like, and I was never one to be running up credit card debt anyway, but I was just like, I'm gonna just chill and just try to let this situation recover. I'm traumatized by what happened, so let me, you know, just just chill. And so I hadn't applied for a credit card in forever. Mm. And so he was like, no, you should get one to build back up your credit, because you're obviously making a great salary now. It's like I was one of those people who at one point, you know, I was a high earner, but the credit history did not match. You know what I'm saying? And so it was like, because you make a great salary, you don't have to worry about probably going back in, into debt. So just get one. And I did. And yeah. he was right. You know? And yeah. so then it just kind of built from there. That's interesting. High earner, but bad credit, mm -hmm. which means you're actually going to spend more because interest Correct. rates are going to be higher. Correct. And so you might as well just try to figure out how to get the credit higher so now your interest rates are are lower and then you actually save more money from being a high earner. And I mean, luckily what also saved me is that, you know, when I ran into um, that bad financial situation with the real estate, I had already bought a house. So it never prevented me from like buying, you know, a house because yeah, yeah. that part had already, you know, been done. And I was still a, a, a homeowner um, uh, when we were dating as, as was he. So uh, it, it is tough to, but we were always very honest about, you know, our finances and our financial situation. And I, it was probably a little more important in our relationship because, as I told you, my salary was always being reported on whenever I signed a new contract. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to tell him myself, like, hey, you know, this is how things work. And us to have a discussion about that, because when people see certain numbers in print, um, you know, they can get intimidated by them or not even that part of it. Just the people that 
you know, maybe his friends, other people start snickering, that whole like, oh, you Stedman, like, you know, just silly stuff, right? <laughs> a lot of people would love to be Stedman, okay? And, and Stedman was, was a very successful business You know what I'm saying? He he's, was a very he's actually no, a legend. No, exactly. He was a very successful business owner yeah. long before, you know, him and Oprah became, um, you know, this this sort of power couple. But nevertheless, like, people always try to no, be it's funny. Difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, especially for, for a woman to be a powerful woman to, you know, for, for the woman, but also for the man too. Right. Because, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and Power. I never I never Trust wanted you. him to, um, you know, feel like just because of, of what I made that I'm trying to bring um, a certain mentality into our relationship. Like, oh, because I make, make X, I get to make all the decisions. I never wanted that. You know, I wanted a true, you know, partnership. Plus, you know, it wasn't like he was some scrub. Like he was making a, a he makes a, a great living. And he was a homeowner and was on top of things long before he met me. So extremely self-sufficient and independent. But I know how, um, you know, people can can sometimes when it's that dynamic of a, a woman who's high profile with a man who may not be as high profile, they try to, you know, use that to, you know, make jokes about people and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I just wanted, you know, him to to make sure that this was something that he was really prepared and, and ready for. So before we leave... Um what would your advice be to any young person, not just a young woman, but young woman or a young man, coming up similar route as you in the sports industry, trying to find their voice, journalism or sports broadcasting? What are some of the things that you went through that you had to learn the hard way that you can actually provide some insight to so hopefully somebody doesn't have to make the same mistakes? What I would say um, to young people in this business is like, know who you are before you come in the door. And... I've seen this happens a lot in our business where, you know, people, they let a place, they let status, they let money change who they are. Right. And so you have to have a firm uh, understanding of what you're about before you walk through any door and you can't let your environment change that. You know, I, I mean, it's, unfortunately, in our business, there are people who, um, you know, used to be nice, start making a little money and then it's like they just a totally different person. Mm -hmm. Right. And so. You can't let an industry compromise your integrity in that way. And I think as long as you do right by people, it will work out for you. And um, I've certainly always tried to do that throughout my whole career. Like, I don't have some long history of doing people dirty, stepping on folks' neck and all that kind of stuff. And I think that served me very well. And so when I did get in tough situations... People were generally rooting for me and wanting to support me because of the type of person that I was. I mean, when I went through the controversy at ESPN, there were so many people who were in my corner. I was really overwhelmed by it. But I think a lot of it had to do with how I moved. And so because um, you want to make people feel good about rooting for your success. And that comes with if you show that you're a certain type of person. And so that's why, you know, I know that it's, it can be hard sometimes to think about um, what somebody has, what, you know, like why they getting this opportunity, I'm not, it's, we all, I mean, it's human, it's, it's natural to do some of that, but I've never ever been the kind of person who um, really hated on people's success, even people I don't really like. <laughs> I'm just like, God bless them, glad they got it, you know what I'm saying? And so I, I think if you operate just worrying about your own space, that will um, that will get you much further than, than you imagine. And, and also sometimes a closed door is great. Mm. Sometimes a closed door will save you 
right? I mean, because I think we sometimes get fixated on certain opportunities and thinking that's the only way or the only thing. And you'd be surprised at um, what happens when a door closes. And so I've never taken, I've always taken a closed door to mean that something else better is coming. So I just want to say this because you mentioned earlier, Colin Kaepernick, 30 for 30. Because I know the 30 for 30 is an ESPN series. Mm -hmm. So now you're producing that. Now you pitch that to them and they have to purchase no, it? No, actually. How does that work? It, it was a really interesting story because yeah. um, Colin actually called me because uh, he, you know, he had some some offers on the table in terms of thinking about how he wanted to tell his story. Because yeah. um, so much has been said and written about him ever since he took the knee in 2016. And he wanted to control his own narrative and tell people what he'd been going through and why he did things mm -hmm. and just more about his life in general. And so one of the offers was obviously from ESPN and Colin called me. And okay. I was very surprised about this. And he said he wanted to get my honest opinion about the company itself. And... Um, and for that matter, and this just speaks to the person he is, he was like, you know, essentially he knew, I, obviously he knew that I went through some issues there and he didn't want to do anything that undermined me in terms of look at me going to work with them when I know how they did her. Right. And I was just like, wow. I mean, and, and I could say at that point, like Colin and I, you know, it wasn't like we were close. It was like, we were cool, but that was I would have never expected him to do that. And for that matter, had he never called me, I wouldn't have been like, oh, why didn't Colin Kaepernick call me? You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so we had a very you know, honest discussion. And, and I told him, I was like, I honestly think ESPN is the best vehicle to tell your story. You know, you've seen their track record with 30 for 30s, yeah. um, looking at what they did with Michael Jordan and just the track record, period, that they've had. Like they, they do excellent storytelling and your story deserves excellence. So uh, if I were you, that's who I would go with. And, um, of course, I'm still friends with some executives at ESPN, so I made sure to text them. And I was like, y'all owe me. <laughs> I was just kind of messing with them. But then in another surprise, he called me back. Um, maybe, you know, I don't even think it was an hour later. And he was like, I know how I can make this work. And I was like, okay, you come be a producer, and I'll, I'll go to ESPN. And I'll tell them that that you being a producer is contingent on the deal. And I was like, what? <laughs> Say less. <laughs> right? And, uh, and because I, I think so highly of him, and more importantly, I think, um, you know, the way his story deserves to be told, that's, you know, whatever existing, you know, awkwardness between me and ESPN, like, I don't even care about that. Like, yeah. he deserves this platform and he deserves this opportunity. So, you know, it's great. Spike Lee's directing it. Yeah. You know, and uh, we, we started filming already, and I think this is going to be um, extraordinarily powerful. Like, just based off the early shooting that we've done, this is going to be something. Legendary performance, I'm sure. <laughs> Spike Lee, anytime Spike Lee gets involved. Yeah. That's an Emmy. Well, we already are. Emmy Award winner. Yeah, let's take a little higher. I wouldn't mind an Oscar. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know what I mean? I, would, yeah. I wouldn't mind. Well, only watch the Emmy because that's, that's television. Can you win an Oscar for television? Oh, well, they did for uh, for a documentary. You can't. Because oh, okay. uh, if you remember OJ's Made in America, that was an ESPN. Five-part series. Five-part series. They won an Oscar for that. What's the best 30 for 30? <sighs> it probably is that one. It's yeah. probably that one. But taking that one out of it, I'm going to say the two Escobars. I was just about to say the that. Two that two Escobars was is legend. Classic. I was just classic. about to say that. Yes. The two classic. Escobars is legend. That is, that that, is really that was powerful. Classic. There was another good one, too. The U, the U documentary. The U one was great. great. Um, and two Escobars was legend. Yeah. Definitely. I guess for you guys, maybe what was the one they did? Broke? 
Broke was a good yeah, one. Yeah, broke was a good one. I was like, <laughs> one. I was like you know, considering what you all talked about, I'm sure that was very, you yeah, know. That's kind of tragic though too though. It is. Like, I mean, it, it is, um, it's, a, it's just a startling, you know, statistic when you were talking about all the reasons that, um, you know, athletes like kind of lose their money. And in conversations I've, I've had with them, what is really startling, I think, is the level of um, just the level of financial ignorance that they had before. Because that that first paycheck comes fast. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's not like, you know, how most of us did it where, okay, first job I work, I'm making $6 an hour. Okay. You blow, making a $6 hour job is, you know, it hurts. It's not like blowing 20 million. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Different and so you, you at least are able to go through a level of financial education by, you know, working your way through college or working afterwards and, and, and sort of doing like that. I couldn't imagine, you know, being LeBron James at 18 years old, being handed a $98 million Nike contract, you know? And so they're, they're learning a lot of things on the fly and in real time. And I remember when Michael Vick said that um, when he got into the league, he didn't know how to write a check. Yeah, I know that writing checks is like kind of passe now, like nobody does it. But at that point, it was that was just crazy to me. And so somebody who doesn't know how to write a check, how are they going to be able to manage 50, 60, 100 million dollars? And he unfortunately learned some very tough lessons, but was so happy to see him at least recoup that, you know, once he had served his jail time. But it um, the level of. uh, of ignorance that a lot of athletes have, and I don't mean ignorance in like a, a negative way, because that's kind of what it is. They just don't know no, what they don't, don't know. know. Yeah, they, don't yeah, know. they yeah. just don't know. Um, coming out of college and, and being very susceptible to people who take advantage of them, it, it's it's tough. But there's also stories too that we're, uh, you know, we, we talked about investments, and I never will forget this story that um, that Kevin Plank, the, uh, the the founder of Under Armour, told me yeah. about Eddie George. So, you know, Kevin. He's a financial advisor now, Eddie George, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Eddie, he, um, so Kevin, you know, he got on because he used to sell T-shirts at concerts. And he um, developed the material from under, from, for Under Armour because he used to do his grandmother's laundry. It was the underwear, it was her underwear. Like that's, he just noticed that material and he was like, man, if we could figure out a way to absorb like sweat and, and stuff that's and make it. That's very weird. That's awkward. Because right? he was but, doing her laundry. But it's, 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 it's a good, it's a good fact. I know, it's it just sounds weird. weird. It's yeah. extremely weird. Yeah, like, it just sounds weird. The sweat absorption? Did his grandmother's laundry. No, that's but weird. the sweat, he didn't get it from that. But oh. He just said, the, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's, everybody gonna be like, Kevin plays grandma sweats her drawers. I'm like, no. Damn. Let me clean that up if I say. He, yes, he um, he did his own laundry as a college student at her house, and of course, as a courtesy, he would do hers too because he's using her her washing machine. That's a hell of a courtesy, though. I'm be honest with you. (laughs) He's just like I'm gonna do it. You know what I'm saying? Grandmother's laundry. You wouldn't do that? No, uh, probably not. It's tough. It's tough. That's tough. Really? Yeah, it's tough. Okay, because when I would do wash uh, clothes at my grandmother's house, I would just wash all the clothes that were in there. Not just washing my stuff. Like, it's hard. Okay. I mean, just more, just try to be courteous. Maybe it's a gender thing. I think that's what it is. That's why you like. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to see any unmentionables that grow up all by But nevertheless, it was the material that gave him the idea to just develop something uh, along, you know, the lines of what we see Under Armour to be. And when he was, uh, he used to just go around passing it out to athletes. And he, you know, because uh, he went to Maryland, he got some of the Maryland guys to to wear it. And he had a contact that got him in charge, or got him connected with Eddie George. And he asked Eddie for an investment in what would become Under Armour. And Eddie was like, nope, but I'll wear it, right? Mm. And 
I forgot the exact figure, but when Kevin Plank told me how much Eddie, Eddie George would have made had he invested, oh God, it's like, that would keep me awake every night. It's like the Ron Artest vitamin water situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you know about that I one? think I heard this story before, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. It's, it's tough though. Hindsight's 2020. It is, yeah. because on one end, they're getting pitched all the time by right. people like, yeah. here's my business, will you invest, this and that. And you see probably more stories that wind up on the negative side than somebody missing out on hundreds of millions of dollars like, <laughs> like Eddie George. And um, so I, I really do feel for them because they're in... Um, a very tough financial position unless they have people around them that can help them safeguard their money. That Eddie George story, that's, that's tough. tough. Yeah. That's tough. So who are some of the people that you hold responsible as far as educating you, like some mentors? Who are some of the mentors that gave you the game as you was coming up? Well, you know, the, the, probably your first mentor is your mama. <laughs> and it, and it's, it, and the it's, biggest. Yes, that's the biggest mentor that you have for, you know, as you're growing up and forming your ideas in the world. And, you know, my mother, she was always somebody who um, was going to give it to me straight, (laughs) whether I wanted to hear it or not. And um, just, you know, thinking about some of the things that she overcame. I mean, she overcame a drug addiction um, and and a lot of just other challenges. And, um, you know, and and now she has a a master's and, you know, she went back to, to college in her late 50s. And so I really... I'm just so impressed um, and just awed by her her strength. And so when it came to um, financial advice, whatever, like my mother really was somebody who who always um, gave me important li- life lessons that I was able kind of to build the foundation of my life on. Uh, I mentioned, you know, Michael Wilbon, like he's somebody who uh, whose career I wanted to emulate just as a young journalist. Um, you know, not only loving his writing style, but I just felt like he really approached the profession the right way. And, you know, there's a reason why even though, even at times when he could be tough on athletes, like athletes respected him. And mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of wanted that, you know, because I think even when you have to have um, or criticize athletes, um, they will respect you as long as they, if they, as long as they feel like it's coming from a real place. And like, you're not trying to be petty, you're not trying to get personal. Um, but really just being honest and trying to be fair. And so um, he was, you know, super intr- uh, instrumental um, in terms of just seeing how he navigated uh, his career. Um, Rachel Jones, like she was a mentor of mine when I was in, in high school because uh, I did this high school journalism program before I, uh, you know, got to college. And she was one of two mentors that I was assigned. I mean, both of them were great. The other one was Johnette Howard, who I later worked with at ESPN. And, you know, Rachel wasn't a sports writer. She was actually a senior features writer. And she really taught me, you know, just so much about reporting, about how to approach writing, um, and, and just about how to conduct myself in terms of interviews and conduct myself as a journalist, uh, which was really important. Like, her, just watching her interview other people, I learned so much. And uh, she was just a great writer, a fantastic person, great journalist. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's been, listen, I could be here all day if I listed all the mentors. And already I'm thinking about all the people I didn't (laughs) say, which is why I hate questions like that. I I met y'all too. Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, I believe something, in something that Issa Rae said before, is that sometimes we think of mentors as being people who are super successful and we look at those people and think like, oh, they'd be a great mentor. Sometimes the best mentor is somebody right on the same level with you, right? Because they're going through the same- Network across. Network across, right. They're going through the same thing that you are. Because even now when younger journalists asked me to be be my mentor and I was like, you don't really know anything about me. I was like, (laughs) other than 
you see the the success I might have and say like, oh, you should be my mentor. But I was like, really, a mentor relationship shouldn't be that. I mean, there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Like, what you want is for me to sponsor you, and and I don't mean that in a, um, you know, in a in a way that's negative. Like, a sponsor will put in your name, you know, put in a good word for you if you're trying to go to a certain company or connect you with a plug that could get you somewhere. That's what a sponsor does, mm-hmm. right? A mentor is somebody you want to use as a sounding board, somebody that, you know, you want to vent your frustrations to, somebody who can be honest and real with you about where you are in your career um, or even sometimes where you are in your life, hold you accountable. That's not what, you know, the that's not what sponsors necessarily do. So I always encourage people to know, to know the difference and don't pick mentors so haphazardly. Watch how they move, watch how they navigate. You know, see if this person really is someone who a has time for you and um, b is is willing to invest in the relationship the same way that you are because uh, i can only mentor so many people um and i just think these mentorships just should happen as organically as they possibly can mm. so what's your current list of projects your portfolio that you <laughs> that you're in right now okay so uh, i'm a contributor a contributing writer at the atlantic um, I host the podcast on Spotify, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Uh, I am developing a podcast network with Spotify called the uh, Unbothered Network. Uh, I have a show coming out on CNN Plus with Carrie Champion called Speak Easy. Uh, I'm a producer on Colin Kaepernick's documentary, his 30 for 30, that'll be coming out um, on ESPN. And let's see, did I miss any jobs? Oh, I also have a book, a memoir coming out in October. That was seven things. Holy crap. <laughs> wow, that's a good number. It's a good number. number. It's a great number. Right? There you uh, have it, ladies and gentlemen. The one and only. Jamel Hill. Yes. King of the Hill. This is the NFT. <laughs> we'll be queen. Or this is the NFT oh, moment. No, no, I could be, be king too? Okay, that's all right. Let me not limit myself. Exactly. <laughs> Why we stop? We can't stop What up, though? What up, what up though? though? Detroit, we did it for you. <laughs>
It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.